You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. The omnipotent king, the all-powerful king, and his kingdom eternal. What does eternal mean? Without end. Without end. Just uh, uh, forever. This omnipotent king and the kingdom eternal. Uh, How amazing this story, this story of redemption. And the whole world celebrates. I absolutely love. How many of you have already got your house decorated and your Christmas lights up. Uh, I, uh, I love the Christmas cards that are starting to come in. Don't you love getting the Christmas cards in the mail? And you see, wow, the kids have really grown. And, or, uh, wow, look what they did this year. And uh, really fun. Um, and this is a time when all the world gets together to celebrate this day. And yet not everyone understands the significance of the omnipotent king. And his kingdom eternal. And today we're going to draw all of our focus on this omnipotent king. This God who became a man to purchase our salvation. And to set up his kingdom that will never, ever end. And uh, it's going to be an awesome series. Uh, Today we're going to just begin to to journey in. So open up your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 1. And uh, let's pray as we, as we do. Uh, Lord, we come before you and we ask, Lord, for your presence to be here with us. We thank you for your promises that wherever two or more are gathered in your name, there you are in the midst. Lord, here we are, several hundred, Lord, gathering. Lord, we ask for your presence to be with us. And Lord, for each and everyone listening and watching online, Lord, would you bless them. And would you open our eyes to see the wondrous things that are in your word. This story of redemption, this plan of redemption laid out before the foundations of the earth. And it all centers on you, King Jesus. Give us understanding about your kingdom. That we might walk in your kingdom, Lord, today. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. We're looking at the Christmas story. We're starting in Matthew chapter 1. And uh, let's look. Matthew 1, verse 1. Are you there? Are you ready? Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ, not his name. Uh, Jesus Christ, not his last name. Uh, Christ is the is the. Uh, title, it means the Messiah, the anointed one. It means the one that was promised from the beginning of time. Here it says the book of genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, in other words. And why do we need to know about his genealogy? What is so significant about his genealogy? Why do we need to be concerned with his genealogy? Well, here's why. It was promised from the beginning of time after Adam and Eve fell into sin 
that there is going to be a Messiah who comes. And Eve, he is going to come through your lineage, the seed of a woman, a reference to the virgin birth all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And this seed, oh, he will be spectacular. He will crush the head of the serpent who deceived you and brought all of this selfishness and sin and wickedness into the world and who usurped all that God had given man to be king over. And we see that man was not able to be the king on the earth that God created him to be. But this Messiah, he will be the king who restores righteousness and justice on the earth. And he promised Adam and Eve, he's coming through your lineage. And so here, Matthew gives us the genealogy of this Messiah. Uh, as time would go on, this, this lineage would be further refined. Not only is he going to come through Eve's lineage, but then through a single family, Abraham and Sarah. And then not only through Abraham and Sarah, but then through one of the specific tribes, the tribe of Judah. And then not only through the tribe of Judah, but even more specifically, through a single family in the tribe of Judah, the family in the lineage of David. And so here uh, we read uh, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. For Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. And, and we're not going to read the rest of the genealogy here right now. Uh, I'm hoping to come back to it uh, uh, in a future week because there's some profound things here. But uh, this lineage that God had promised, God had fulfilled. The Messiah came through this lineage and he comes into the world. Um, it is important that as we look at this genealogy that we understand this was the promised lineage. This is what God had promised from the beginning of time. But it is also important to understand that Jesus did not come into existence at his incarnation. In other words, that Jesus always was. That he existed before time began. Or in other words, that he is God eternal. And John's gospel, Matthew's gospel, shows us the genealogy. John's gospel shows us the origin. Uh, God, John's gospel shows us that Jesus did not come into existence at the incarnation, but that he was the eternal God. And John's gospel puts it this way, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning, right? In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And through him, all the worlds were made. In him was life, and that life was the light of man. And the light shines in the darkness, and darkness did not understand it, could not comprehend it, could not extinguish it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. 
This is who Jesus is. This is why all of the world stops. This is why uh, he is so significant. He is the Messiah, and he is promised from the beginning of time. And so Matthew here breaks us into the genealogy of, of man and showing that he comes from the seed of Abraham, the promised lineage of, of Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant being fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, we're going to pick up, we're going to jump ahead to verse 18. And uh, are you there with me? 118. Now the birth of Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Messiah, was as follows. After his mother was betrothed to Joseph. So Mary and Joseph, just young teens, part of the mission church, young adults group, if you will, right? Just young adults going through life, worshipers of God. And they're betrothed. And look what it says. Before they came together, and you understand what that means, right? Before they had physical relations. What a concept. That you would actually court and not be physically intimate. They court exactly like we court here at the Mission Church. And I'm so uh, uh, blessed to see the, how you young adults are walking godly lives and uh, I just saw Cal and Laurel, and they just had their second little baby boy, and, and I remember them meeting in young adults, and then keeping themselves pure for marriage, and then getting married, and I remember talking to them in my kitchen, and I mean, it's awesome to watch how God does it, right? Well, here, that's Joseph and Mary, and they're betrothed. The world looks at this as crazy, right? Like, what? You're not going to have relations until you get married? That's insane. No, that's God's will. That's how it's supposed to work. And Mary was betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She finds out she's with child of the Holy Spirit. Wow. Uh, what does that mean? She was with child with the Holy Spirit. This is the story. This is the miracle. This is the prophecy of the virgin birth. Why did she need to be of virgin birth? Why is that so important to the story? Why is it so significant? It is significant, man. It is really significant. Uh, it is, Christianity is absolutely worthless without the virgin birth. And to our astonishment, in this day of apostasy, there are churches departing from the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Why is this virgin birth so important? Why? I know we have a lot of theologians in the room, a lot of Bible scholars. Uh, let me hear from you. Why is this virgin birth so important? Ah, Adam's line. There's a theologian. Adam's line. Can't give you credit because I'm not sure who said it, but uh, Adam's line is stained with sin. You see, you and I didn't choose to have a sin nature. We inherited a sin nature. You never have to tell a two-year-old, okay, be selfish. No, they got that figured out all on their own. Mine, right? Where we inherited sin. And you are a sinner, not because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. We inherited sin through Adam and Eve. And now in order for this righteousness to come to the earth, there has to be a man without sin. And Jesus here is the second Adam. 
The virgin birth is not just to make the story more spectacular so it carries on through the ages. No, 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 no. This is God's plan of redemption. Jesus is the second Adam, the God-man made perfect. The first Adam made perfect. He fell in sin. The first Adam was given a kingdom, rule over the earth, have dominion over it. He lost his kingdom to the usurper, to Satan. The second Adam is Jesus. He is perfect, and it required a virgin birth. So she tells Joseph, and look at this. Uh, That must have been a difficult talk. Uh, Joseph, I know you love me, and I love you, but I'm pregnant. And Joseph says, what? She says, yeah, but I, I I didn't cheat on you. This is by God. And Joseph's like, I wasn't born yesterday, man. Uh, (laughs) Verse 19. And Joseph, her husband, being a just man, uh, or being a godly man, and not wanting to make her a public example, didn't want to shame her, he was minded to put her away secretly. Here, Joseph is brokenhearted. He thinks Mary has cheated on him. They've been waiting. They've avoided all the temptation. It's been hard. He's waiting for their wedding day. And now he thinks she cheated on him. And he's brokenhearted. And notice what he does. This is is worth noting. He, He pauses. He prays. And he thinks, I don't want to make a public example of her. How can I break up with her in a way where I'm not going to dishonor her? And men, I want you to know something. This is a man's role in life, to protect and to cherish and to uphold women, to honor, you know, and and be be a man of character. And this is lost in the world today. And uh, one of the things, men, of coming back into a relationship with with God is that we walk in our God-given role of the things that are important to him, and that's that we would protect and cherish and uphold uh, our wives and uh, man open her door and uh, not because you not because she's not capable no because she's to be honored she's to be valued she's to be protected and it's a good reminder for us um, so he's he's wondering how can I do this, this is what a godly man does he 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 protects he 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 keeps safe and verse twenty and while he thought about these things behold. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. This is a supernatural birth, Joseph. I'm doing something with your life that is bigger than you will ever know. Uh, This is the second Adam. He's the redeemer of the world. He's the Messiah. Uh, and uh, uh, so powerful, uh, you know, uh, changes Joseph's heart. Uh, Joseph, son of David, by the way, uh, does not mean that Joseph was, uh, that David was Joseph's father. David lived a thousand years, literally 1,000 years, literally, before Joseph. David lived 1,000 B.C. But uh, lineage of David. Why? Because that was where the promise was, right? And, and God is just revealing his word over and over here. Uh, verse 21, she shall bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
You shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from the sins. You see, in Hebrew, the name Jesus was Jehoshua. Or in other words, uh, Yahweh is salvation. You shall call his name Yahweh is salvation. That would be the Hebrew. The Greek is Jesus. You shall call his name Yahweh is salvation for he shall save his people from their sins. And this is why Jesus came. Uh, this is uh, his purpose. Uh, and, and here uh, the angels, you know, is, excuse me, uh, God is revealing all of this to Joseph in a dream. And here Joseph's heart is changed. And I love how God can change a human heart. I love how God can soften a human heart. How he can take us from seeing things one way and then open our eyes and having us see them an entirely new way. And Joseph goes from saying, oh, I can't believe she did this to me, to now going, oh my gosh, I'm in. I can't wait to walk through this with her. I love when God changes a heart. Uh, you shall call his name Jesus or Jehoshua, for he shall save his people from their sins. And by the way, very interesting to look at. If we look at history, the name Jesus was a common name in Jewish culture. It was a really common name, just like Bob or Sue or whatever. Really common name because they were waiting for the Messiah. They all knew that Jehovah was their, their salvation and their hope was in him. And so Jesus, a common name until the first century. And then the name Jesus is just wiped off the pages. Uh, no longer do Jews know, name their children Jesus. Now Jesus is a, uh, a bad word to them, right? Because they didn't receive their Messiah. And uh, history reveals all this to be, be true, even in the you know, genealogies. Um, verse 22. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. Uh, verse 22 is a reoccurring phrase in the book of Matthew. So all this was done so that what the prophet said could come to pass. We're going to see it just six, excuse me, at least six times in the first two chapters. So I'm going to make note of them there. You might want to underline that all this was done, which was spoken through of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. Why does Matthew tell us this? Because there were so many details so many prophecies about the Messiah so that when he came, you knew who he, who he was. And Matthew was going to show us again and again and again, these are the prophecies that God has been giving since the beginning of time. And here he, he quotes the prophet Isaiah uh, from Isaiah 714, which was given 700 years before Jesus. Look at verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. How could that be? How could a virgin conceive? Here's how. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Emmanuel means uh, literally God with us. El in Hebrew is God. Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, he shall be Emmanuel, God with us. Well, I thought his name was Jesus. It is. Uh, that is his name. That is what he's doing. Jehovah is salvation, and he is God with us. Prophesied over and over this prophecy 700 years before Jesus came to the earth. Verse 24. Then Joseph, being aroused from his sleep, 
did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took to him his wife, and he married her. Uh, they got married. There she is, uh, uh, pregnant, and he's marrying her. His heart has changed. Verse 25, and he did not know her. Uh, that speaks of sexual intimacy. Did not know her, and underline the word till or until she had brought forth her firstborn son. And then obviously he knew her, and he called his name Jesus, just as uh, the Lord had commanded. Uh, we know that uh, Joseph uh, and Mary uh, had relations because the Bible tells us the names of her sons. Uh, she had uh, uh, Joseph and then James and then Simeon and then Jude. And, and so she had children. Uh, she didn't remain a perpetual virgin. That is uh, uh, just religious folklore. Uh, verse 2. Now, after Jesus was born, circle the word after. Chapter 2, we're entering into between one and two years after Jesus' birth. And I know that might be contrary to what you thought or what you heard, uh, but this is one or two years after Jesus' birth, and the text will, will reveal this. Uh, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So we're introduced to a couple of different groups here right now. One of them, Herod. Which Herod is this? This is Herod the Great, who was the king, history records, at the time of Jesus. Herod, a great and wise master builder and a powerful ruler at the times of Herod the Great. And then there's wise men coming from the east, uh, they're called magi, and we'll look at them. Uh, look at what happens here. They come to Herod, who's a powerful king, and they said, who is he, excuse me, where is he, who has been what? Read it with me. Born king of the Jews. Who is king of the Jews right now? Herod, that was his title, given by Rome, king of the Jews. Herod claimed to be a Jew, right? He was the king of the Jews. And now these uh, powerful wise men, these wealthy wise men, they come and they come with all their entourage into Jerusalem and they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east. Uh, supernatural signs, even stars uh, following him and pointing out his birth. And we have come to worship him. And there they are asking the leaders of, of, of Jerusalem, where is this king, your king, the one who was born king of the Jews? Verse 3, and Herod, the king, heard this. And what does it say? He was troubled. And all of Jerusalem with him. This is the birth of Jesus. The birth of King Jesus. He is by far and away the greatest person in human history. Think about him. He has divided time. All of human history either dates to Jesus, before Jesus, or after Jesus. Today is the year 2022. 2022 what? 2022 years since Jesus came to the earth. And all of human history points either 
to him or from him. He divides time. How do you explain that if he was a mere man? No one more influential, no one has has caused more hearts to be moved, more songs to be written, more books to be written, more poetry to be uh, given, more uh, uh, paintings to be painted, more, more meditation to be given to this one Jesus. He is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. He is the Messiah. He is the one that mankind had been waiting for since the fall of Eden. He is the one that God had promised to Adam and Eve who would crush the Satan's head, crush the serpent's head. He is the one that all the prophets wrote about. He is one that the whole entire Bible is pointing to. Everything about him, the Bible says, in the volume of the book, it is written about him. And now he appears. And these wise men from the east They come to worship him. Wise men from the east. What do we mean the east? Well, east of Jerusalem is Persia. Modern day, Iran. Before it was called Persia, it was called Babylon. And they come from the east. It is a 1,400 mile journey. These wise men uh, are not just three little guys uh, like we see in the, you know, all the Christmas cards and everything. Uh, no, this would have been a huge entourage that came with them. For they were very highly educated. They were dignitaries. They were renowned. And they come uh, with all kinds of wealth, all kinds of uh, an entourage with them, uh, all kinds of uh, treasuries that they brought and secured armed and, and, and all kinds of supplies with armed guards. They come to Jerusalem to worship this Messiah. And here's the interesting question to consider. How in the world did they know about the Messiah? How did that ever happen? How did they know that he was going to be, what? King of the Jews. Well, here's how. The year is 602 BC. The strongest nation in the world is Babylon. The king of Babylon is the strongest king that has ever lived on the world to date. His name, Nebuchadnezzar. You can read your history books about him. He had world dominion. And he conquered Jerusalem in 602 B.C. And when he took Jerusalem, he took all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and he led them captive into Babylon. And he took all the heads of state of Jerusalem, uh, the people who were really smart, and he made them his advisors. There was one young man that Nebuchadnezzar took whose name was Daniel. And he was a very young man, only a teen. But he really stood out. And he took him into his court to train him, to teach him, to further educate him. And as God's providence would have it, 
Daniel is there in the king's court, attending to the affairs of government. And Nebuchadnezzar has a terrifying dream. And Nebuchadnezzar orders all of his court, his political court, they were called magicians. Or in other words, magi. And these magi were told by the king, I had a dream and you are my advisors. Tell me what that, uh, what that dream was. And they said, oh, king, that doesn't work that way. You tell us the dream and we'll give you the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar was wise. He was sharp. He said, oh, no, 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 no. I've played that game before. You give me some uh, Nostradamus kind of interpretation and, and it doesn't work that way. You tell me what my dream was. And they go, king, there's not a man in all the world who could tell you what your dream was. He goes, I'll give you a week if you don't tell me. So the king's court was in panic. And Daniel rises up and he says, men, do not be afraid. There is a God in heaven who knows the secrets of all things. And Daniel prays to his God and God reveals to him the dream Nebuchadnezzar had. Not only does he reveal the dream, he reveals to him the interpretation of the dream. And do you know what the interpretation was? In exquisite detail, Daniel explains to the king the dream that God gave him, and the dream was about the coming world empires on planet Earth in chronological order. And so on the day when the Magi were going to have their heads chopped off, Daniel stands before the king and he tells the king in detail his dream. And the king goes, wow. And then he gives him the interpretation. And he says, king, your kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon, it's the world kingdom right now. But it's going to be overtaken and it's going to collapse and the Medo-Persians are going to come in and overtake you. After the Medo-Persians, there's going to be another king. And he's going to come in quick. He's going to come in fast. And he's going to conquer the entire world. He's going to conquer the Medo-Persian empire. And that was Alexander the Great. And if you know anything about history, he conquered the world in three years. And after the Medo-Persian, there's going to be a strange kingdom that comes in. It's going to be, and he taught, taught, taught them about the Roman kingdom and how the Romans were going to come in and overtake the Alexandrian kingdom. And then after the Roman kingdom, he talk, talked about the final kingdom on earth, which is interesting, the revived Roman empire. And he says, there's going to be one last kingdom on the earth and it's wicked. And there's going to be 10 kings that all come together and give all of their power to one man. And that one man, the Antichrist. And church, may I tell you, we are approaching those days very quickly. For if there was a world leader who came onto the scene right now who had wisdom and was charismatic and articulate and sharp and 
and the Antichrist will be all of these things. Uh, by the way, Antichrist doesn't mean ag- against Christ. It means in Christ's place instead of Christ. He will come on the scene and the world will embrace him like a hero, like a Messiah, like a deliverer. And these 10 kings, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, will give that one king all of their power. And when they do, his kingdom will only last for three and a half years. And then it will be destroyed. And here, just to give you wet your appetite to maybe make you want a further study, here is a verse in context of what we're talking about that Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 2 on your screens, take a look at this. Read with me, church, in a thundering voice. And in the days of these kings, pause there, what kings? These 10 kings who give all their power to that one king. Okay, let's read again. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Amen and hallelujah. The kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. What kingdom are we talking about? The messianic kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus Christ. Wow. How powerful. Uh, Another verse, one more in Daniel. Daniel 7. uh, uh, Daniel explaining again this last kingdom. Let's take a look again. Uh, I was watching in the night visions. And behold, one like who? The son of man. This is written centuries before Jesus. One like the Son of Man, one like Jesus, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he, that's the Son of Man, came to the Ancient of Days. Who's the Ancient of Days? God the Father, right? And they brought him near before him. Uh, They brought him before the Father. Let's look at the next verse. Then to him, that's to uh, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. Rest of the verse. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which will not be destroyed. This is the one that the wise men from the east came to know about. This is the one that the wise men from the east came to worship. And here's what happened back in our story with Daniel sharing these things to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar goes, oh my gosh. Not only did you know my secret thoughts and my dreams, but you also gave me a profound interpretation. And and Nebuchadnezzar just knew it was of God. And needless to say, Daniel was promoted. And guess what he was promoted to? To be over the chief of all the magi. And so for the next 60 years, from 60... 
From 608 to 538 BC, Daniel taught all the magi in Babylon. And what do you think he taught them about? (laughs) This man of God, who was called by God to be a prophet, he told them about the coming Messiah. How did these wise men know about this Messiah who would be the final king on the earth? How did they know? Because Daniel's legacy lives on from what he did in Babylon, which is now Persia, right? Just amazing. Just amazing. And so these magi, 600 years later, see a star, and they know it's the Messiah's birth, and they travel 1,400 miles to come to Jerusalem, and they are coming there with all a huge entourage. It would be a four- or five-month journey that it would take to get there. And they come with all their gifts because they want to worship this king. And because they're bringing all this gold and wealth and everything with them to worship this king, They've got camels and security and everything else. And they come and they come to Jerusalem. And you know what they're expecting? They're expecting all of Jerusalem to be there at this, at this king worshiping. And they get to Jerusalem. And what do they find? Nobody even knows where he is. And no doubt, they're shocked. No doubt. And so they go to King Herod. And they tell King Herod, oh, Herod, we know that the Messiah has to be born. He is the king of kings. He is the final king. And Herod was deeply troubled. Why? Why is Herod so troubled? Because he's worried about what? His kingdom. I want you to know. Whenever you come to the Messiah, your kingdom has to go away. In order for thy kingdom come, my kingdom go. (laughs) There's no other option. And Herod would not let his kingdom go. Why? Why? Well, because Herod had worked hard for his kingdom. He was an insecure little man, which made him an overachiever. He was only four foot something tall. He had 10 wives. Two of them were named Miriam. How would that work? (laughs) 15 children through these wives. Uh, Herod is a fascinating study, uh, by the way. Uh, uh, Maybe we'll talk more about him in weeks to come. But Herod was, he had built an empire. He was a master builder. He was phenomenal. He was called Herod the Great because he was such a master builder. He was a brilliant man. He he reigned for 40 years as king. He was a military genius. He was politically astute. He was a phenomenal builder, uh, just, uh, just phenomenal. I'll, I'll give you, I want to just show you, just so you can kind of grasp, just to kind of whet your appetite, uh, a little bit about some of the things he built. Uh, one of the things I, I, that I think is just so, so beautiful uh, that he built was Herod's port at Caesarea. Uh, here's a picture of it today. Uh, he built this little harbor right here. Uh, and that picture is not that great, but I mean, it's stunning when you go there and uh, today, we don't know how he did it. 
Even today, 2,000 years later, this harbor is still not filling in with sand. Like, how do you do that, right? Uh, let's go on to the next picture. Here is a Colosseum, a little amphitheater he built at that port. I've sat in those seats. It's beautiful. You're overlooking the Mediterranean right from this little uh, Colosseum that he built right there. And they would do all kinds of uh, games and different kind of things there just for his entertainment, right? Uh, here's another picture. Keep going. Uh, this is an artist rendition of what that harbor port in Caesarea would have looked like based on archaeological evidence that we have uncovered. This is what they guessed that would look. You can see just how gorgeous it is, right? Uh, next slide. Uh, this right here is an aqueduct that Hera built that brings water up from the north. I've seen this thing. It is incredible. Uh, there was no plumbing in those days, right? This is gravity fed and it brings water for miles and miles and miles from the north to this little harbor port in Caesarea, uh, an engineering masterpiece that we don't know how they did today. The slope on this thing is so subtle because it goes for so long and yet it's gravity fed and brings water. Uh, keep, keep going. Uh, these are pillars that they've uh, uncovered and, and restood back up right there on that port in Caesarea. Um, not only did he build uh, this harbor port of Caesarea, but he built a palace. He built a lot of palaces. One of them that I want to show you is called the Herodian. Named it after who? Of course. It was his little empire shrine. It was his Facebook. It was his Instagram, right? It was all about him. It had all his conquests and awards and everything in it. And this is what it looks like. This is the Herodian. It was this mountain peak. He chops off the top of it and digs this uh, thing. It was, it was opulent. Uh, this doesn't do much for it. Let's see the next. This is taken from an airplane, by the way. But here you can see all the rooms and the bathhouses and the spas and everything that's in it. And then here's an artist redemption uh, uh, version of what it what it looked like. This was a this was this was opulent, man. This was like he was an amazing builder. Uh, it, it was gorgeous. Uh, not only did he build that, but he built Masada. Masada was another palace that he built. How many of you ever watched the movie Masada? Uh, read your history books, man. This is a fascinating story. The battle, the, the, the end of Masada was in AD 70 when all the Jews escaping the persecution of Nero went to Masada as their last holdout against the oppression of Rome. And uh, I mean, they all died. They all, they, amazing, right? But they went there because there was so much food and it was such a, a lavish place. They overtook uh, Herod's Masada. And here it is. It's this mountain fortress and it's hard to see. I've been to Masada. It's phenomenal. We're going to go to Israel again in 2023, Lord willing. So uh, start planning for that and putting quarters in your piggy bank. And uh, um, anyway, let's go on on these slides. Uh, this is a picture on top of Masada from a, a plane, and, and you can see all these, all these rooms here. These were all storehouses for food. He just filled this thing up to the brim with food that would let you, could, you could live in there for decades, right? Uh, and then uh, there were all kinds of, this was a, this was a synagogue on top of Masada uh, for Herod. Herod wanted his own synagogue, right? He claimed to be what? Jewish, religious, interesting. Um, let's go on. Next slide. This is amazing. This is on top of Masada. See these little cones on the floor? 
that was a false floor. On top of that went another floor. Do you know what this was? This was a jacuzzi. I mean, excuse me, this was a sauna. Uh, they would build fire in the walls, and then they would bring water down the walls underneath the floor, and it was an elevated floor with hot water underneath that would bring so he could sauna at Masada. Uh, <laughs> my point is just to show you what an amazing builder he was and this kingdom that he built, right? Uh, check out this next one. This is in Masada as well. Do you know what this is? This is a cistern. You got to have water. And so he would dig these giant cisterns in the side of this mountain, and then he would bring these drainage ditches, and when it rained, it would fill up these cisterns. We're talking engineering marvels, and these cisterns still stand. I've seen one. I yelled in it, hello, oh, 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 you're out, right? right? It's amazing, just amazing. And so King Herod was deeply troubled. Why? Because he knew prophecies about this king, this Messiah. And what prophecies did he know? That this Messiah will be the king of the Jews. And his kingdom will last, what? Forever. Forever. Or in other words, that this Messiah will be the final king who will rule the earth forever. And because he knew these prophecies, he was deeply, deeply troubled. By the way, all those great buildings and things that I just showed you of Herod's construction, do you know what his masterpiece work was? The rebuilding of the Jewish temple. The Talmud, which is like a uh, Jewish, you know, or uh, Jewish law on, on, on the Old Testament. Uh, it's kind of like a commentary, if you will. Uh, it records of Herod's temple, and it says, you have never seen a beautiful building if you haven't seen Herod's temple. It is the definition. It is the standard. It was like, it was remarkable. He, white stone, overlaid with gold, mass, I mean, just, it was massive. It was 35 acres uh, this temple area, and it was opulent, right? It was like one of the wonders of the world, and uh, it's all of it he built, and now he hears that this Messiah, this final king is here, and he's deeply, deeply troubled. He doesn't want this final king who's going to rule on the earth. Uh, Herod was troubled by some of these prophecies. Uh, I wanted to take you to, uh, gosh, I'm so torn, um, we don't have time. Uh, <laughs> this is what's going on in the story, right? This is what's going on. Um, let's jump in. Uh, Matthew uh, chapter 2, verse 4, right where we left off. Uh, Herod's troubled, verse 3, right? Verse 4. And so what does Herod do because he's troubled? Well, here's what he does. He gathers all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, and he inquired of them, where the Christ was to be born. The Christ? Christ is a title. It's not his last name. It's a title. The Messiah. Or in other words, where the final king of the earth was going to be born. That's what he wants to know. So he gets all the PhDs and all the doctors of religion and he gets them together and he and and they study they hit the books in verse 5 and they say to him in Bethlehem 
of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. Why would they say, Bethlehem, you're not the least of the rulers of Judah? Why would they say that? Here's why. Because Bethlehem is a podunk, dirt poor, poverty stricken little town. And the prophecy was the Messiah is going to be born there. Wow, that's weird. Sorry, Christmas tree. Uh, That's weird. Uh, Why would God do that? And here the prophecy is, uh, this is from Micah 5.2, written 500, excuse me, 740 years before Jesus. You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers. Everybody would think Bethlehem was what? It was the worst place in the world. It's the least place in the world. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. And for whatever reason, Matthew doesn't quote the full verse here. I wish he did. I'm going to quote it for you on the screens. This is Micah 5.2, where this comes from. Uh, let's read it. Uh, but you, Bethlehem, Ephratath. Ephratath is uh, just another name for Bethlehem. It's, it's, the, it's just like a synonymous name. Like, um, I don't know, but you get what I mean. Bethlehem, Ephratath. Uh, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah... Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. What does that tell us about the Messiah? He's the eternal God. There is only one who came and whose goings forth were from everlasting. There is only one eternal being. His name is is God. His name is Jesus. He is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God. Uh, uh, And he's from from old. And this is the prophecy they bring to the table here when when Herod asks, hey, where is he going to be born? Now, this is interesting because again, Bethlehem is a poor, underprivileged, impoverished town with really high poverty levels. It was the hood, in other words. Not a place for kings. Not a place for royalty. Not a place for the rich and famous. And certainly not a place for the Messiah who was promised from the beginning of time to come. Of all the places that God could have chosen Why Bethlehem? What is God doing? Of all the places for the Messiah to come, why Bethlehem? Why a podunk, poverty-stricken, homeless-laden town? Why? Here's why. God is teaching us his values. God is teaching us his values. You see, Jesus' kingdom is a selfless kingdom. Because God is a selfless God. And instead of choosing the very best for himself, he comes to a place that is one of the worst places on earth when he comes. Interesting. Because the kingdom of Jesus is selfless. 
You see, this Messiah King, the one promised from the beginning of time, was born in Bethlehem so that all could freely come to him, even the outcast of society could freely come. If the Messiah was born in a castle, then only royalty would be able to come to him. If the Messiah was born in the uh, uh, Iraq, in uh, oh gosh darn it, um, drawing, a, drawing a blank on the word. Uh, if, if he was uh, born in Athens, only the philosopher, philosophers would be able to come to him. If he was born in a palace, only the wealthy would be able to come to him. If he was born in a temple, only the religious elite would be able to come to him. But if he was born in Bethlehem, rich and wealthy dignitaries from the Far East would be able to come and worship him. And so would homeless paupers who have nothing. Because the kingdom of this king is selfless. And he wants you and I to know that. I want you to know Jesus was no less God when he was that babe in a manger. Jesus was no less God who was holding the universe together by his sovereign power when he was that babe in a manger. And it shows us the selflessness of our God. And it is staggering. It is staggering. This God who is worshipped with such reverence in heaven that angels with six wings, they two wings, they cover themselves because they are not worthy of looking into his beauty. With two wings, they fly around. And with two wings, they cover their feet in humility before him. This God, who is the radiant glory, comes to earth and he empties himself of all of his glory, not of his divinity, but of all of his glory and becomes a man, scratch that, a child to meet us where we are. And he comes to Bethlehem so that all could come to him. And he says, now you know my heart. Now you know my values. Now emulate me. Emulate me. Freely you have received what? Freely give. Do you think there's someone in your life that you might be able to let go of being right on so that you can meet them where they are and restore a relationship? Do you think there's someone in your life who needs you to just not be so much better than them and come to them on their level so that they can understand how you care for them and how important they are to you and that some relationships can be mended this Christmas? The kingdom 
is a selfless kingdom. And he will do anything to come to us and to reach us where we are. I want you to know if you're here this morning and you have not yet made Jesus your king, you are not too sinful to come to him. You are not too dirty to come to him. And you are not too good to come to him. For he has made a way where all can come to him, but you have to come. You have to come. And uh, we see just how really uh, selfless uh, this king is and the values that he places on it. Uh, there is no mine in God's kingdom. Did you know that? There is no mine. God is really rich. He owns everything. He has no limitations. He is incredibly generous. He is incredibly selfless. He is a giver of givers. And virtually everything that God gives you, he gives you for this purpose, that you might use it on others. It is so different than how we give. I'm going to give my wife a Christmas gift. I'm going, baby, I bought this for you. It's a dress. It's for you. But God gives gifts differently. He's going to go, Nancy, I got you a gift. Here it is. It's for everybody else. And here's your gift of authority. Here's your gift of influence. You're an influential man in the world. You have authority in the world. Here's your gift I'm going to give you. It's to help those who have no influence and authority and to use it for them. And here's your humor, and here's your charisma, and here it is. It's to be the one who brings cheer and, and joy and, and life to others who don't have it. And he wants to give the gifts that he gives you that you might take them and use them for it because he's a selfless king, and he has a selfless kingdom, and he wants us to walk and in that kingdom, and life is amazing. Selflessness is so attractive, and selfishness is so ugly. We're going to see ugliness at its depth in just a moment as Herod to preserve his kingdom. What does he do? Murders all the babies. And we think, how could that ever be? And yet we live in an age today where people will murder their own babies for their own kingdom so they're not disrupted. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. God wants to make you something substantial. Let him it begins with understanding who he is. It begins at the cross of Jesus Christ. This love that is totally undeserved comes to you freely from a God who loves you deeply and wants to make you into something significant. And then he says, now I want you to go into the world and love others that way. Freely you have, been, freely you have received, now freely give. Selflessness is so attractive. Selfishness so ugly. Uh, look at verse 7. How, how are we doing on time? We've got, oh, I'm always late, crying out loud. Um, <laughs> verse 7. Then Herod, when he had secretly, secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. Hey, how long ago was it that you saw that star? Oh, it was about, I don't know, about a year ago. We saw it, and we then put a plan together, and then we got all our stuff together, and then we made a four- or five-month journey. Why? Why? Oh, I just wanted to know. Why does he want to know? 
deplorable, man. And he sent them to Bethlehem. And he said, hey, go search carefully. We found out the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Go search carefully for this young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I might come and worship him also. What a liar. A deceptive ruse as he's trying to elevate who? Himself. Acting like a worshiper so he can elevate himself. And if you're doing that today, oh, you better repent. It looks ugly, doesn't it? It looks ugly. And yet in every church across America, there's people doing it. I'll worship, and it's really just so I can be elevated. Verse 9. Uh, verse, uh, and when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen, past tense, in the east, went before them again, in other words, until it came to the place over where the young child was. This was no normal star. This was a supernatural manifestation given to them to lead them to Jesus, which God will do in your life. He will use supernatural means to lead you to Jesus, even as he's doing right now as we speak. Uh, verse 10, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Why? Well, that star had been gone, and they, they were looking for it again and now this star is leading them again and when they had come into the house this isn't at the manger scene this is a uh, Jesus is a toddler now he's one to two years old and when they come into the house they saw the young child with Mary his mother and they fell down and they worshiped him they did not worship her they worshiped him and when they had opened their treasuries they presented gifts to him Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold throughout the ages has been a precious metal that is of great value and worth and wealth. And it is a metal, it is a gift for a king. And here we see these gifts were even prophetically inspired by God, the gift of a divine king, gold. Next gift, frankincense. Where was frankincense used? Well, that was the uh, frankincense were incense that were used right at the entrance of the temple, the tabernacle. The priest would burn incense. He is a king and he is high priest. I understand those gifts. Gold, frankincense, and the third one? Myrrh. Myrrh? Myrrh was a cheap perfume. Used for embalming. A picture of his sacrificial death on the cross for us. A king, a priest, and one who would be the sacrificial offering for the sins of the world. Three prophetic gifts from these wise men, all inspired by God. They give them at uh, Jesus' feet. I wonder, what must these wise men thought as they traveled 1,400 miles to worship this Messiah that they had heard about for centuries, that they had been studying about? And when they finally get there, there's no lines, there's no crowds, there's no worshipers, and they finally get to the house, and it's a poor, podunked, nothing little house. They pull up with their entourage of camels with tinted windows. And there they come to this house. And it's a, 
it's a, it's a shack. And they must have wondered, who is this king? That the prophets would speak of him centuries in advance. That all the authors of the Bible would write about. That divine stars would manifest in the sky to announce his appearance. And we come to him and he's living in a poor house. Who is this? So powerful that the stars move and so meek that he dwells with the poor. And in awe they worship him as king. And they learn about the meekness and the selflessness of his kingdom. The selflessness of God is just astonishing beyond our comprehension. And it baffles the mind. We're out of time. We need to, we need to wrap up. Let's see if we can close this out with these next few verses. Look at verse 12. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. God warned these wise men, hey, this uh, uh, Herod is nefarious. I want you to know, as a believer, there is divine protection on your life. And may you rejoice in it. May you thank God every day. May you wake up in the morning and say, Lord, thank you so much for your goodness upon my life. Verse 13, now when they had departed, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, arise and take the young child and his mother to flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child, to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night. Shows you how perilous the times were. When did they leave? Not like, hey, we'll pack the U-Haul and leave in the morning. No, 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 no. Let's sneak out now. Why? Because the soldiers were already coming in and killing children, right? They left by night and departed for Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. This is the prophet Hosea. Again, the third prophecy here we see being fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I called my son. That's from Hosea 11, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, that they tricked him, he was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in, the, in Bethlehem and in all the districts from two years, two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. So that gives you an idea of how long the wise men said all this journey began and when all this happened, right? Uh, that it was fulfilled, here it is the fourth time, that it was fulfilled by what the prophet Jeremiah spoke, uh, a voice heard in Ramah. Ramah is a town that's right there in Bethlehem, right near Bethlehem. Uh, I've always heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. From who? From Rachel. Uh, Rachel is the name of Israel's wife, by the way. Jacob and Rachel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel, so Israel and Rachel. So the mother of Israel, in other words, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they were no more. Oh, how the groaning, and that must have been a horrid night as Joseph and Mary leave that night. The last thing I want to leave you with today is this. Jesus' kingdom is a selfless kingdom, and Jesus' kingdom is non-compulsory. You have a choice to enter into it 
or not. You have a choice to make him your king or not. The wise men, they chose wisely. He's my king. And he is worthy of leaving everything behind to come and worship him. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.